0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Biosphere, where a couple of Caltech students get together and talk about their favorite science. I'm John, gonna be the host this week, and I'm here this week with... Aditi. Lev. Julianne. Welcome. So this week, instead of sharing the topic all with you guys out front, I wanted to tell a bit of a story. And so let's start with our hot take. On a scale of one to five, how would you guys rate farming? Julian.
1: Farming. Um, I think I'm going to give it a five because it's so important for our food production, right? Mm. It's kind of a direct connection to the land if you're thinking in a more, I don't know,
2: poetic way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'd say I'd give the platonic ideal of farming a five. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a platonic form. Uh, but realistic farming as it is done today, probably like a four.
3: Um, Yes. Farming is very important. I give it a four. The way it's done today involves a lot of misuse of water resources, unfortunately deforestation, especially in parts of South America. And um, if we wanna like climb further up the food system sort of chain, uh, there's a lot of waste that goes into it. Food gets wasted just because it's not, especially in the United States, because it's not like the perfect tomato or whatever. So. Platonic ideal of farming five. Hmm. Current use of farming four. I think yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I got started thinking about it. I mean, what's, I was, what's your hot way? take? Yeah, what's oh, your hot my hot take. take? <laughs> Last That's time I, I held out on the number. Oh, okay. You <laughs> yeah. held <on> farming. <laughs> For farming, I feel like I, okay. I have like a secret dream that I would love to just be a farmer. I yeah. think it. I think it would be an awesome life. And yes, you know there are issues with it and it's not and especially if you wanted to farm at like the industrial level there's really big uh, environmental issues that come with yeah. it but yeah i mean like the platonic ideal of being having your own land and living off of it and maybe and selling the surplus i think is a is a really attractive and beautiful yeah. way to live and uh, and so i really yeah it. but um, did you give a number? No. Yeah. No, number yeah. no. number. No yeah. oh. number. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, it's so easy to forget. Five, five, five. 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 I'll, I'll give it five. five. I agree with Julian. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> nice yeah. <scene>. yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> um,
0: and, uh, and so anyway, I was looking into farming and, and like the problems that farmers deal with. And one of the problems that some farms deal with are caterpillar infestations. Um, they, you, far, some farmers lose actually thousands of dollars of crops. Because of caterpillars multiplying on their farm and eating them all up, and so like if you guys had this problem, if you were a farmer, what would you do to to fix I, it? I would yeah. go straight
1: genetic engineering, <laughs> <laughs> BT crops, right? That'll, like destroy the caterpillar digestive tract. <laughs> wow, wow, that's okay. Pretty... All uh... out
0: war.
2: <laughs> so I, in my mind, I'm recalling a bunch of plant how plants fight off caterpillars uh-huh. and there are and i'm trying to think of how to bring it in here because i know that there are uh trees that release tree pheromones mm-hmm. that as there's an infestation of i think it's a moth moth uh, larvae are eating the plants the the trees uh Propagate the signal basically through the forest Mm -hmm. and the trees that aren't yet being attacked start producing uh, poison for the caterpillars and then you uh, Save it and I also know that there are I think tomato plants that secrete uh, Some compound that changes the behavior of caterpillars and they attack each other or something. Whoa Uh, That's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the details are. That could be
0: the topic for a future episode. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe you
2: could genetically engineer more plants to drive caterpillars crazy. I don't know. (laughs) Don't just get rid of them, (laughs) torture them. (laughs) Yeah. Go crazy. Kill (laughs) each other. But I think my go to would probably be to introduce some sort of predator of the caterpillar, Mm -hmm. kind of like ladybugs and aphids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I think I would have. Probably said the same thing. Uh, for so I have like this tiny little garden plot, which does not even slightly count as like large scale farming of any kind. However, if you too have a tiny garden plot, there's lots of like I think supposedly easy ways to take care of them. Like you can spray your crops with things that aren't like terribly dangerous. Yeah. Like you know some people say like using a, a little like a tea brewed out of. Uh, like chili powder and stuff sure can, sure. can help. Like but some natural, like insecticide. some sort of natural insecticide. Some yeah. capsaicin based. Yeah, stuff. capsaicin yeah. based stuff or like um, like neem oil and things supposed to keep away bugs. But yeah, I guess if I was doing this on a large scale, I'd also want to go with something like uh, introducing a natural predator that I mm-hmm. knew that I knew was preferably like native to the area and wasn't gonna mm. mess up the ecology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Well. You know, I think all those are viable solutions, and uh, I think for me, the first thing that came to mind was was insecticides, uh, whether they be natural or, yeah. or you know something synthetic. But you know, if you if you were to spray the plants with insecticides, then you have to deal with all those chemicals on your plants. Mm-hmm. And besides, as a farmer, you know you might be you might feel really cheated by these caterpillars, and you're feeling more indi- uh, vindictive than than mm-hmm. just <laughs> using insecticides on the plants. So, so one thing to do is to go online and you can buy what I think is probably one of the most merciless solutions around, which is parasitic wasps. Oh, oh yes, really. yeah. So now, as truly merciless as these wasps are, they aren't like black market, dark web, you have to use Bitcoin to buy them wasps. These are like Amazon.com with Prime Shipping
2: wasps. (laughs) Are there wasps that you have to buy with Bitcoin? (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, Do not get your investing advice (laughs) from (laughs) us.
0: But they're also, you know, when you think of wasps, you think of like bee-like things that are gonna sting you or bite you, but these aren't those type of wasps. Um, They don't sting people in the summer. Uh, They're actually these super tiny wasps, wasps about a millimeter across. So they fly around your garden, right? They smell for their target, fresh caterpillar eggs. And when they find them, they land near it, they'll lick the egg a little bit and they'll tap it, kind of like you might tap like a watermelon to see if it's ripe. And, uh, and what they're actually doing, it's kind of cool, is they're using that kind of acoustic feedback to see if they can sense that another wasp has already laid an egg inside, in the, the wasp egg inside the caterpillar egg. Yeah. Um, and if the, the egg is, is not already inoculated, then they figure, okay, this is a good place for me to lay my eggs. And then they take this sharp, needle-like appendage called an ovipositor, and they just pierce it into this poor caterpillar egg. Uh, and and then lay their eggs inside of it. So there are many different species um, of these types of wasps and if it was a merciful species that would be the end of it, right? The, the, The egg, the caterpillar egg, would be killed and the new wasps inside of that egg would sort of feed on it and grow out of it, right? And sometimes it does happen that way, but then, if that were the case, there would only be a few uh, wasps that emerge from a single caterpillar egg because there's not that much biomass to, to eat. So, the really merciless species, they'll lay their eggs into the caterpillar, and then the new wasps won't even start to grow until the caterpillar itself has grown up and fattened up. And then, once it's like fat enough, then something triggers in the wasps eggs, wasp eggs to. You know, begin development, and they sort of eat the thing from the inside out. And there are these kind. Of, I mean, I I was like, couldn't look. There are pictures online of like what these yeah. caterpillar husks look like when they're just like filled with these wasp larvae that are coming out. It's really gross. It's re- it's horrifying. Are really. these?
3: Are these? Do the caterpillars hatch with the with the wasp eggs inside them? It, it depends on the I, species of okay. the wasp.
0: Sometimes they have different um, patterns of like when they emerge from okay. the caterpillar. Yeah. Wait. What's so
1: does does the wasp? Lay its egg in the caterpillar egg or in the caterpillar.
0: In in uh, actually, the ones I was reading about were in the caterpillar egg.
2: There there There's are several strategies. Yeah. There, yeah. you can it can be directly in the egg. They can sometimes lay an egg right next to the caterpillar egg, mm-hmm. and then the larva kind of burrows into the caterpillar yeah. once the caterpillar emerges. Mm-hmm. And then I think there are some cases when they just take a grown caterpillar mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm.
3: I think so that's really. the one I've seen as like the grown caterpillar because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. oh, I was imagining really how
1: they can fit that many how a wasp can fit that many eggs in the caterpillar egg the caterpillar yeah. eggs, eggs not are pretty big that, so yeah. they're,
2: they're about one millimeter in diameter okay
1: so they're much larger I mean, well, the, the wasp, wasp itself is a millimeter okay so the eggs are, are pretty tiny here yeah,
2: yeah. I so th- this is personally touching to me because I I like to raise caterpillars into butterflies and so I, yeah, it's always a danger Mm. because basically you you have to, if you're doing this, you have to go out and you have to go to your, you know, dill plant, which is what I normally do basically every day and then try to find fresh butterfly eggs and bring them inside and then Mm -hmm. protect them from from Hmm. the outside world because with these wasps being so tiny, and their s- sense of smell being so keen, like they can fly through your window mesh or <gasps> anything else. So you, you have to be very protective mm-hmm. of your baby caterpillars. <laughs> <laughs> um.
3: Are these the same? So I just double check this on the internet as one does. So the ones that I've seen before, have eggs laid on the backs of these caterpillars, like an adult caterpillar. Is that different from-
0: I think it is. I saw those too. I think those are different than the ones that I'm thinking of. Okay. Um, But I didn't look into those, so I don't know how different they are. But yeah. yeah. Um, So the species that I particularly spent a lot of time, um, or I should say the genus that I particularly spent a lot of time looking at is called, I think it's pronounced trichogramma, Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not totally sure if that's the correct pronunciation. And I found a paper that cited that people had started using these trichogramma wasps as biocontrol agents for farms as early as 1911. Mm. Um, So they've been around for a long time, and people have known about their usefulness for controlling caterpillar populations. But
2: I wonder, so how, how useful are they in the sense that if the wasp larvae wait until the caterpillar is grown up, the caterpillar eats a lot. Mm-hmm. while growing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so they pro- yeah, you probably have to experience. pick a
0: species that kills yeah. it early on, right? Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Because that, that would make more sense to me. Yeah, than, yeah.
0: definitely. Um, but as far so you know, it started in 1911 from what I can tell. And it wasn't until the 1960s that entomologists that were interested in advancing the wasps' agricultural usefulness noticed something peculiar about them. And that is that most of the entire, like if you take all the um, individuals of the species and you kind of just lay them all out, you notice that most of them are female. Uh, Males account for only about 10% of the whole population of, of these wasps. And this spurred a lot of theorizing, especially because in the 1960s, there happened to also be a lot of theoretical work done that came up with all these hypothetical mate selection scenarios that could explain distorted sex ratios in animal populations. And so people started to study this because they were very interested in like, oh, could this be a model system studying these theoretical ideas in in sex ratio distortions? But then, in 1990, a totally weird finding came out. So a scientist named Richard Stoutamer, I think that's how you pronounce it, who's now a professor at UC Riverside, decided to treat this trichogramma parasitic wasp species with antibiotic. And he just sprinkled some tetracycline in their honey and fed it to them. And what the hell, guys, normal sex ratio characteristics return within a generation. Oh. Mm-hmm. So a few years later and it's confirmed that these, these wasps having all female offspring, or having all female offspring almost, not because of some weird mate selection behavior, but because they're infected yeah. with the bacteria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: That's incredible.
0: Yeah. Isn't it's that
2: crazy? Kle- Klebsia, what? Kle- Klebsia. 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 Yeah. The yeah. bacteria? Yeah. No, well, there's, no there's this, uh, this one rickettsias, is... Rithums. there's Rickettsias, there's Wolbachias. Wolbachia, this is yeah. Wolbachia, and so okay. I'm gonna okay.
0: talk a little bit about Wolbachia. Wolbachia. Um, and so, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't at the time, that was 1990, and it wasn't at the time uh, a bacteria that was unknown. Like, Wolbachia had been characterized in um, mosquitoes, prior that was yeah. where it yeah. was really mm-hmm. discovered to have these sex um, ratio distortion effects in, in, like, the common house mosquito. Um, and actually, it's now estimated that sixteen percent of all the insect species in Central and South America are infected with Holbachia. What percent, Make, sorry? Sixteen percent of the species. Wow. Okay. okay. Um And you know, we're talking about like the Amazon and stuff. So there's that's a lot of ins- different yeah. insect species, uh, and so. That makes Wolbachia one of the most successful and abundant parasites on the planet.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, uh, And the weirdest thing is, is that in the majority of cases, Wolbachia always has the same effect, which is that it causes female-bias sex ratios mm-hmm. in its hosts. So, um, you know, this this uh, bacteria can infect many organs within the, the insect, but it's best known for its infection of the insect ovaries and testes where it has these effects on the animal's reproduction. They can get into, it's interesting, they can get into mature eggs, but as conniving as they are, they can't get into mature sperm. And so that's where the sex ratio thing comes in. So if I was like inside a female wasp's egg, if I was a bacteria inside there, right? And and the egg that I'm in gets fertilized and becomes a male, I'll infect that resultant male, but then once I'm in that male, it's a dead end, right? I can't get into the male's sperm, and so I can't get into its children. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why, you know, as a parasite, it's within my best interest to ensure that the egg that I'm in becomes a female, Mm -hmm. because then I can travel down the lines of descent and Mm -hmm. reproduce. Um, Okay, so now how does Waubaki induce like that egg becoming a female. There are multiple different ways. In trichogramma, the way it happens is this process called parthenogenesis, mm-hmm. which is a type of asexual reproduction. So I didn't know this, I didn't even know about asexual reproduction in animals before reading about this, so I kind of read a lot. But, yeah. but the way this basically works is that normally you have, uh, all, all bu- um, animal cells can be binned into two classes. There are somatic cells, which make up the body, and there are gametes, which make up um, you know, the reproductive cells, so the sperms and the eggs. Now, in your gametes, uh, you, have, you have one set of all of the genes for, for the organism. Um, in your somatic cells, you have two sets. And when you have fertilization that happens, a sperm and an egg coming together, you have one half coming together with another half. You have a full fertilized egg that's now what we call diploid. And that can then divide into a full embryo. So the idea
2: is that you get a set of your chromosomes from your mother and a set from your father. Correct, yes.
0: In parthenogenesis, what happens is the egg is induced to copy its uh, uh, its own genome such that it now has two sets. And normally during egg development, what would then happen is that egg would split into two new eggs such that they each have one copy each. But the bacteria um, prevents that split from happening, mm. such that the egg goes past a certain checkpoint and gets confused and see, you know, the, the machinery inside the egg basically sees, oh, I have two copies of my genome, I'm diploid now, so I'm a fertilized egg, and I'm ready to go and turn into an embryo. And this is akin to cloning, essentially, yeah. right? The, yeah. the, the, the wasps are literally just cloning themselves. So, so I read about this in a book that uh, I'm getting really into called I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and A Grander View of Life by Ed Young, who's mm. a writer for The Atlantic. I love reading these popular science books to kind of get big picture ideas and get like very, very large scale updates on fields and things. And I've, got, I've gleaned a lot of inspiration from many different books over you know the course of my, my education in biology. Uh, books that are not written for people with an education in biology, but that I think are still really useful. And I was wondering if you guys had any books that were inspirational for you?
3: So I think my answer will be the shortest, so I'll go first, which is, despite being in the science field, I don't actually read a lot of science books. Um, I find that, not because I think they're not useful or they're not awesome or whatever it is, but for whatever reason, when I get the chance to read I like to read something completely different from what I already read on my day-to-day basis, and um, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I don't, I think it's great. I probably should read more popular science books that are written. One, I think it's so, totally fine. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it would be useful one for me to learn how to communicate my work better, so to read these books that are written in a way that anyone can understand, and two, like you said, it's a really good way for me to get like a big update on a field that's maybe not mine, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not a Gut microbiome person, but this book might be really "I Contain Multitudes" might be mm-hmm. really a really great update on the field as a whole for me. Um, so I think that's my that's my short answer. I end up reading stuff that isn't uh, terribly biology specific.
2: So the, uh, the book that came to my mind in trying to think about poetic justice and biology is, uh, and uh, I mean th- th- this will have spoilers. It's a novel, so. Uh, you know, take that as it is. So it's Intuition by Allegra Goodman, and it's an incredibly interesting novel. Uh, it's based on true events of uh, scientific, like questionable scientific conduct and a, a huge legal case, congressional case that, that came of it. And... Uh, I don't want to go into too many details in terms of spoilers, but it, w- it was really interesting to me because it's told largely from the perspective of the person who comes into question for their scientific conduct, and, and everything is very murky. Uh, I think it gives a very realistic presentation of both just lab life and kind of the way people interact with each other. Mm and just how excited you can get about your results that might lead you to misinterpret them and unconsciously bias your further experiments and your further results and, and how that can lead to a, a terrible, terrible mess. Mm.
1: Well, I think I'll give two answers. One of them is a cop-out and one of them is about a book. So I, I think I'm like a DT in that I don't really read that much Popular science type stuff very often. Um, one genre that I do like a lot is science fiction. Um, so there's there's one book uh, called Solaris, which <laughs> I love Solaris. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a great book. Um, and I don't know. I guess what, one kind of message that I got from it in the end is that unlike in Star Trek or many of these other very optimistic sci-fi worlds, um, you know, you can communicate very freely with. Alien life and other species in Solaris, they encounter this being that is sort of essentially different from them in such a way that they they can't understand it um, via direct communication, even though it's sentient. Um, but this idea—it's sort of a tangential connection, but kind of brings to mind how science works, because even when we're interacting with other species that aren't necessarily, you know, fundamentally different to us, but we can't speak to them, right? Like this is not the way that you can necessarily interact with other creatures and other other living things. And so in the way that we pursue science, we're interrogating it in other other less direct ways, because you can't speak to an insect, you can't speak to these, to these wasps. And so even though perhaps Solaris is a little bit um, not on the optimistic side with regard to our ability to connect with or speak to beings different from us, I think it still is kind of a lesson in um, other methods of communication, even if it's through kind of the scientific process.
2: My my, my takeaway from it, I think, was a little bit stronger even uh, in that I think that it's fundamentally impossible for us to fully understand things that are not human and that in science also in everything that we do, we are going to interpret things through a human, like an anthropocentric lens. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the reasons why yeah. we can't, I, I don't think we can ever get it, things perfectly right, because even if we you know, somehow manage to fully internalize what the data are giving us, what the results, the models are mm-hmm. given, giving us, we we would still, almost necessarily have to express it in human terms like for example so we've had the concept of a black hole for about a hundred years now but that term black hole was a metaphor with no meaning other than a conceptualization that was a metaphor for mathematical equations until this past year when we got this radiogram mm-hmm. of a black hole for the first time and it actually looked much like how we have been describing it in movies and in books and everything. And so that, that really speaks to the power of both mathematics as just a language, as a descriptive language, but also how we have to understand things in human terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't, just looking at the math, it would take years and years and years, you know, if a person like Einstein to develop an understanding of what that math means, and then to translate it into something that is understandable to the human mind, like black hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. <laughs> Philosophy <laughs> with love. <Yeah. laughs> uh, the of the metaphor, yeah. Because we
1: can't all be like that guy in the matrix who just stares at the Japanese, just scrolling right. down yeah. and yeah. sees the image of the, red, the woman in the red dress. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. the math. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so my, my other answer was going to, um, not be about books, um, but about uh, TV shows. So some of the BBC's mm-hmm. um, productions, with particularly with David Attenborough, so yes. the Planet Earth series and such. Um, the way that David Attenborough, I mean, what he's doing is kind of very much empathizing with behaviors of animals and, and framing them in, in a human light. Mm-hmm. Um, but just kind of the sense of wonder and exploration that they... Um, Given that show with this beautiful footage of animal behaviors in the wild, even though of course they're cherry picked from who knows how many hours of, of <laughs> attempts to get the perfect shot. Um, but this is very inspirational to me and I do a lot of work in behavioral um, biology and so seeing behaviors in nature is just, it's a very inspirational thing for, for my science. I sometimes spend a long time trying to get uh, Nice-looking footage of my beetles and ants interacting, so that I can—I don't know—gunning for the BBC type thing, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, even yeah, though it's I know it's a pipe dream, perhaps. But, you
0: know. All right, and I guess with that, we'll transition into our break for. Actually. Oh, you want to say something, left, Sorry. Yeah. Okay. I
2: Well, <laughs> even if it doesn't go into the episode, I do want to talk about poetic justice. Oh, poetic okay. oh, justice. Yes. Yes. Okay, go for it. All right. I, I'll thought. just start with my hot take on poetic justice. Okay. I give it a two. <laughs> and, and, and this is why. Because, and I, I mean, I don't remember who first introduced me to this idea. Like, at this point, it's internalized enough that I feel like it's my own idea. But I don't think it's my own idea. But anyway. I that, that, like... Justice, like even children know what justice is, but it takes a lot longer to figure out what mercy is. Yes. And I think that poetic justice inherently is very cruel. Yes. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm kind of against it. <laughs> but you gave it to two. Two? two. Why <laughs> is it two? Why, <laughs> it, why no, Because it's still, it's still It's still justice, justice. it's still, okay. Uh, like, yeah? Uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're saying poetic justice is like mm-hmm. a children's justice? Yeah. an eye for an eye
1: justice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. 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 yeah, a yeah. very ironic sort of, like, uh, uh, yeah, ironic sort of justice. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, <I> just- <laughs>
0: Okay, so now we're going to transition to the part of the episode where we take 10 minutes to create a poem or Upgoer 5 to recap the episode. UpCore 5s are blurbs that use only the 1,000 most common words in the English language, which makes summaries harder than you might think. All right, we have 10 minutes. Stop. Cheaters.
3: Typing. Oh, I'm sorry. I hear no, typing. I'm, I'm uh, trying to look up what <laughs> be 127 is <laughs> and I can't find
0: it. All right, who wants to go first?
3: You should, as the host.
0: All right. Yeah. So I did an up-goer five.
3: All right, let's hear it.
0: All right. A mean flying thing lays its kids inside another animal, and the kids eat uh, eat it before it even has a chance to grow. Some people think that the mean flying thing is good for controlling the other animal, and they use it. Does that make those people mean? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, inside the mean flying thing is another mean tiny thing that makes almost all the mean flying things girls, and all the girls are the same. But don't read into what that means too much. <laughs> all of this is to say that in life, mean things get what's coming to them. Nice.
3: <laughs> oh, I love it. Nice. Nice.
0: Nice.
1: I definitely don't want to go last, so I, so okay. I think okay. I'll, yeah, go for I'll, I'll go next uh, with, I guess you could call it a poem. Okay. Glut your mandibulate form Eat the hand that feeds Unleash an ire unique Agricola Soon a surgeon looms Eggs will soon invade Upon thy wretched form Trichogramma. Yet another sways Change next will follow. Females only lay. Wolbachia.
3: Wow, <laughs> Julia. <laughs> Why didn't you want to go last? That would have been perfect. I didn't know it was going to be that. Perfect. <laughs> My limerick could only cover one half of the episode because I couldn't oh, figure so it all good. in. <laughs> oh. <sighs> all right, I'll just say it now. When you when you lean into the either.
0: dramatic poem, it works. It's so amazing. Well. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
3: I have a limerick that could only cover one like. Basic top layer of this whole thing that was amazing. It covered all of it. All right, plants and caterpillars have a beef, but wasps they gave the caterpillars grief. The wasp children eat a caterpillar's meat, and now it can't chew on the leaf. Wow,
2: <laughs> so good, oh, man. Lev, let's, yeah, let's go. I've been envious of all the limericks, so I wrote two limericks. Oh yeah, okay. Um, there once was a wasp named Cheryl. Who got her kids apparel <laughs> She flew on a bush and with her long tush a caterpillar imperiled
3: <laughs> Love it? With a
2: cruel lot in life, with a great weight in strife, the pillar was burst to quench the wasps thirst and released many wives. Oh, yes. <laughs> Hi there, it's
0: John. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at biospherepodcast at gmail.com. On the social media front, Lev is our only representative right now. You can find him on Twitter at LMT underscore spoon. If you're having fun listening in with us, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Leave a review on iTunes or comments on SoundCloud and share this episode with your friends. Send us your own recaps to this episode. You can find a link to the UpCore 5 editor in the show notes. We would love to read them. Huge thanks to Caltech Letters for hosting us. Find more great stuff at their website, caltechletters.org. Happy New Year to everyone.